blessed with one about, what, 10, 12 days ago, I guess. Same type of rain. And uh, it's really been a beautiful winter here. I know those of you back east and in the north have had a terrible winter, but it's been nearly all winter long here. It's been highs in the 50s and up to 60 degrees and down around freezing at night. We're supposed to get two or three days in the lower 20s here the next couple, three days till this front moves on through, but it's 47 degrees out right now and pretty pleasant, really. So we're thankful for it. I might remark there was an article on the Steve Quayle site this morning uh, about artwork and so on that's been found here in North America and in South America, some of it dating back to 600 A.D., and uh, there are pictures written in stone going back that far of elephants. Uh, A lot of people think that nobody, Europeans or nobody came here until uh, Christopher Columbus came across, but way, way, way before him, close to thousands of years, they've been able to show uh, pictures of elephants here. And they even figure that they hauled elephants from Africa to here, some of the people who were coming over, because they had ships that would haul hundreds of soldiers, and they used elephants as beasts of burden and wanted them over here. So it it's shows several different areas where things that our modern history will not admit uh, did occur long, long ago, which backs up our understanding that Israel was here in the beginning and so on. He, the article quotes Barry Fell quite a bit, who's a well-known archaeologist who's written many books. I read his books, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. But Steve Collins, of, who's now of United Church of God, uh, quoted Barry Fell a lot in writing his book about the migration of Israel and how they came over here early. And what Barry Fell and Steve Collins missed is the direction of travel. It began here, went there, and then came back instead of starting there and coming here. So, this will all play out very shortly, but I, I wanted to point that article out to you because it's a, it's a very interesting read. They say there were no camels or horses here until the Spaniards brought the horses over. And yet, I have seen several times the little museum over near Death Valley, because I used to go over there to when I lived in Pahrump, uh, Nevada. And uh, they've got footprints fossilized of camel and horse tracks that were found right there in that area. So the, the story you read in your history book was not correct whatsoever. Anyway, that's an aside. Uh, let's get on into the sermon. Last week, I went into Ezekiel 37, having led up to it with many dire prophecies against Israel, against uh, different nations of the Gentiles. And then we come in that end-time context to Ezekiel 37. And somehow we slipped a cog there back in Worldwide, and I tried to explain to you uh, a better understanding than what we used to have in Worldwide about Ezekiel 37, 
And as Herbert Armstrong used to say about the two trees and other things, you just didn't get it. Uh, so I want to go back through some of that and try to explain it better to you. And uh, then maybe if I can do my job better, you can see it uh, in a clearer picture. But doesn't it strike you strange that we would have all of these prophecies of end times events to Israel and all these other nations... And suddenly, without warning, right in the middle of that, we have a chapter that's dealing entirely with the great white throne judgment. Now, that's what worldwide taught, that Ezekiel 37, this valley of dry bones, was the second resurrection when all Israel would be brought to life and live a hundred years uh, during a period of time in which they would have an opportunity at salvation. Just a standalone chapter here, by itself, in the middle of all these chapters that keep talking about the latter days, the latter days. Now, I'm going to kick forward just a moment here to show you something. In chapter 38, 16, after chapter 37 about the Valley of Dry Bones, okay? And you shall come up, verse 16 of chapter 38, against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. Now, why do we go from latter days, skip forward over a thousand years, and then come back to the latter days? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit the context. <clears throat> you go on... Uh, Let's see, there's another one here. Where is that? My eye doesn't fall upon it. talks about in the latter years, here in the same context. We'll, we'll get to it here in a little bit anyway. It's in there. I just wanted to... Sh but that one's enough to show you that chapter 38 is talking about the latter days. And the one before it was talking about the latter days, before 37. So what's with chapter 37? Let's, let's think here for a moment, if we can. Uh, we, we, can we get sometimes cognitive dissonance uh, where we have believed something for a long, long time and we hear something different and our mind will not accept that. It, it, it's just noise. It doesn't penetrate. We don't get it. Now, you're not as bad about that as some because you began to hear some things differently than what you'd heard them in Worldwide here beginning about 22 years ago. Some of, well, no, none of you that early, but uh, uh, 22 years ago anyway. And it penetrated, and you heard, and God opened your mind, and you got it. Well, all right, here's another one we need to get. Uh, so, he's been talking to Israel here in chapter 36 and how he will begin to convert them and bring them to understand and that they, he will be their God and so on and that they'll build the ruined places. So, let's get to 37 where here again Ezekiel has been talking about the latter days throughout this whole book. Uh, God has taken him different places in vision 
to see certain things, and he does him the he does him the same way here in chapter thirty seven. Set him down in the midst of this valley full of bones. Now, what threw us in worldwide is if you go down to verse eleven of chapter thirty seven. He says who this is. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We're cut off from our parts. So, in seeing that that said whole house of Israel, we had read Revelation 20 where it talks about the second resurrection, the rest of the dead not having lived until the thousand years were up and tied Ezekiel 37 to Revelation 20. Uh, But we'll see that there is some difference in the two accounts, that it is not exactly the same. Now, ask this question then. If these bones are the whole house of Israel, what did we believe about the second resurrection and the white, great white throne judgment. That that was the people who remained, who had never had a chance at salvation, babies, old people, whatever, that would come up at that time. But ask yourself this, is that the whole house of Israel? No. What happened at the first resurrection? 144,000 of the house of Israel were resurrected at the seventh trump. So the whole house of Israel, part of it, was at the first resurrection, right? And then you may have most of it at the second resurrection, but not all of it. So what Ezekiel is seeing here is a metaphor looking at it's a vision. Just like Christ was transfigured before the apostles in a vision. And they saw Moses and Elijah there. Were Moses and Elijah there? No, they weren't. They were dead in their graves. They knew nothing. They had not been resurrected. They were there in vision only. Ezekiel was here in vision only. And what he saw in the vision was this valley of bones, and it represented the whole house of Israel in metaphor or in prophecy as it is fulfilled. And I mentioned last week that Paul says that Israel will be resurrected, each man in his own order. So some bones come up now, some bones come up now, some bones come up later. Right? Each in his own order in the resurrection. So this may represent all the bones of Israel in each of their resurrections, but not all at once. Because the great white throne judgment is not every Israelite at once because some will have been resurrected before that ever occurs. thousand years before. Right? So this is a vision. It's figurative. It includes it all. And what it is then is a representation of several fulfillments 
of the resurrection of Israelites until the whole thing is done. That's what a vision does. It doesn't show you something that's actual. It shows you a representation to give you understanding. They weren't at the millennium and the transfiguration. They says, well, that's... We got Moses and Elijah here, so we better build some booths. It's time of the resurrection. No. Grace says, no, don't do that. And then the Father says, here's the message. When you see those two with Christ, the message is, listen to my son. Don't listen to Moses and Elijah, listen to my son. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore Moses and Elijah, but the son is the key figure. Listen to him. Well, what had they been taught all their lives? We're the sons of Moses. We're the sons of Abraham. We look back to Elijah. That's what the Pharisees taught. The Pharisees didn't accept Christ, did they? So he was telling the the disciples, don't listen to the Pharisees, listen to my son. That was the message. Now the message here is that all Israel will be saved, or will, will be resurrected. But it doesn't say all at once at the second resurrection. Now let's go back through some of this and understand. And then go on forward. So here was this valley full of bones. And he was showed the whole thing, passed over them. And then he was asked, can these bones live? And I said, oh Lord God, you know, I don't know. We went over this. Prophesy on these bones and say to them, You dry bones, hear the word of the eternal. So Ezekiel was told to prophesy to the bones. God didn't just raise them up in the second resurrection. Right? When the seventh trump sounds, will there be any prophets there that can be instructed to say, Talk to these people and raise them up? No. The two prophets, the two end-time prophets, will be dead in the streets of Jerusalem. There won't be anybody around to even instruct to say these things. So Ezekiel's been being told that he was the instrument here in the vision that was used. Then God said to the bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter in you, and you shall live. He said, Tell them this. And then he would lay sinews on them and flesh upon them and skin and put breath in you, and you'll know that I am the Eternal. Now, we took this to be entirely a physical resurrection because it talks about bones and sinews and flesh. Does that mean it's solely a physical resurrection? Not necessarily. Does God have bones? Does God have a face, hands, legs? Does he have skin? Does he have a face? Does he have nose and ears and a mouth? You go all through the Bible and he refers to himself having those things. He also has a breath. Several times the breath of God is mentioned in the Bible. Now how do you picture a resurrection? Let's say the first resurrection. Because here are all these people. Their bones are dry. They're in their graves at the bottom of the sea or wherever they are. And Christ calls them up. 
And they begin to rise to meet him in the air, and those that are alive and remain rise as well after they do. Well, do they come out of the ground as spirit at first? Or do they begin to come back together wherever the bones have been scattered and maybe form a likeness like God? And then God breathes His Spirit and changes them into incorruptible spirit. But even then, they will still have shape and skin and eyes and noses. They're not just going to be like the breeze. God's not a phantom. He's not a ghost. He's not a wind. We are made in the image of God. All the features that you and I have are the features that God has. So I don't think you can limit what is being said here just to a physical resurrection. You're resurrected out of the ground at the first resurrection when Christ returns and changed. Now, do you come up whole physically and then change? It doesn't say, does it? I can't say either. Haven't been there yet, haven't done that. It isn't specific. But I can see, since we will have the same characteristics of God as we do now, that this could be something where He drags you up out of the ground and then on the, you're changed and rise. Could happen, couldn't it? Couldn't it be that way? Or do you just have to be a, an invisible spirit that comes out of the ground and rise? I don't think so. Doesn't sound like the way God does it. Because even the completed thing is going to have features and shape. So let's consider <clears throat> that this might be talking about something that happens in the latter days, since it tells us that over here. Oh, it's chapter 38, verse 8, the latter years. It's over on the next page where it says this will happen in the latter days. It's verse 16. So since the context before chapter 37 talks about the latter days, and the context immediately after chapter 7, 37 talks about the latter days, could chapter 37 then include the latter days? Now, is it the final fulfillment? No, I don't think so. But I think it starts there. Just as... We have already seen throughout all the prophecies that they start with a fulfillment through the church, spiritual Israel. Then later on you have another uh, fulfillment through physical Israel. Then you have another fulfillment in the saints being raised to meet Christ in the air. And then you have another fulfillment at the end of the millennium, when the second resurrection occurs and people come up again and live physically and have children, we'll see, and then they are changed. So, all of these prophecies happen over and over and over again until the last and final one. And some of them have only a couple of fulfillments and they're done. And some of them have another and another fulfillment until the course is finished. 
We'll see that about Gog and Magog here in a little bit in chapter 38 and 39. More than one fulfillment. We tried to make it one, but it's two. And there's where we partly ran into trouble because there in chapter 20 of Revelation, it talks about Gog and Magog coming up against the unwalled cities at the t- after the second resurrection. So we assumed that this had to be part of that and only that. But I'm going to show you that's not so. Now, can these bones live? They represent all Israel. I'm not arguing with that. But they don't represent all Israel being raised at once because that would be a contradiction of other scriptures which show that there are more than one resurrection and Paul underlined that, each in his own order. So we're talking about Israelites, but not all at once in one valley. Israel's not all in one valley. How are they going to be resurrected in one valley? Those people who come up in the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment, there have been Israelites killed all over this world. I mean American soldiers, if you want to just get modern. They've been killed in Afghanistan and Vietnam and all over the world. Iran, Iraq, you name it. Germany, France, World War II, been killed everywhere. So how could the bones all be in one spot? They aren't. They've been sunk in the middle of the oceans. They're not in one spot. So obviously this is a vision that encompasses all the bones of the whole house of Israel. It's just that it isn't all done at once. Have I said that enough times to make it fairly clear uh, that this isn't talking about one resurrection at one time jerked out of the middle of the context of Ezekiel? So Ezekiel's first fulfillment, or the first fulfillment of this vision, is in a much smaller way, and then in a much bigger way, and then in a gargantuan way at the second resurrection. But it doesn't all happen at once. The 144,000 is going to include people who were dead long before chapter 37 of Ezekiel was written. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Enoch, Noah, on and on. And they're not all in one place, are they? So... How is this just, are we going to leave all those people in their graves? If the whole house of Israel has to come up at the second resurrection? That don't make no sense. I use double negative on purpose there. Alright, let's go on here a little bit. So he's going to bring them up, and they're going to have the same characteristics they had when they died which are the same characteristics God has. So it, doesn't, it isn't limited to a physical resurrection. I always thought it was. But I never considered that God has everything you and I have. We have everything He has, except we're physical and He's spirit. But He's not a boneless chicken breast. If He has a head, then it has to have something there that makes it hold its shape. What would your head look like if you took the bone out? 
they've done that, you know. They've taken the bone out and shrunk it up and hung it on a post. All right. So, I think it could include both a physical and a spiritual resurrection, ultimately. So, he said in verse 9, Prophesy uh, to the four winds and it, that it breathe on these that they may live. Well, again, God has a breath, just like these will have a breath. I have a breath now, and when I die on this earth, I won't have a breath anymore. And then if I am so blessed as to be in the resurrection, I will again have a breath. I'll be a spirit, but I'll have a breath, just like God does. He breathed upon, didn't he breathe upon the waters there in Genesis 1? The dry land came up. There's a lot of references to his breath throughout the Bible. Anyway, verse 11, he said, These are uh, the whole house of Israel, and they're dead. No hope. You know, when you're dead, you have no hope. Ecclesiastes 9.5 says you don't know anything. You're completely suspended. No thought, no action, no nothing. So any Israelite that's dead anywhere on the earth has no hope for himself. And I've seen a lot of dead animals. I've seen a lot of dead people. And uh, I didn't see much hope that they were going to come back. Pretty well lost. Therefore I prophesy and say to them, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Oh, if this valley of dry bones was in Israel, then how is he going to be bringing them back to the land of Israel? They weren't all in this valley in Israel. Were they? I will bring you into the land of Israel. Some of them were in heathen lands, having died there. I think that proves the point right there in just one half a sentence. I'm going to bring you there. And you shall know that I am the Eternal when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. Well, we already know that's going to be in order. We already know that he is going to spiritually resurrect 10% of the church and bring it to build a temple, right? Now, he will probably also do a few physical resurrections at the same time that he gathers those back to the land of original Israel, the promised land, and settles them there. So that may be one, the beginning of the resurrections of Israel, and that's the first time that he brings them back to their land. And worldwide, people were, have died all over the earth who are members of the church of God and were spiritual Israelites, right? And doesn't he say he's going to gather 10% of those from the north, south, east, and west and bring them back to the promised land? Yes, he does. And that they'll build a temple there with Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses at the end time. Now let's look at, for a moment again, <clears throat> at the resurrections that are mentioned in the Bible to physical, resu physical resurrections over the years. And where they were done. And by whom. First you have Elijah. Now that wasn't something that was done 
to impress all of Israel about repentance or anything else. It doesn't even say that anybody knew about it but the widow and the kid and Elijah. So what value did it have? Well, it has value today because he says that that original Elijah is going to, not the original, but a type of that original Elijah is going to arise at the end in Malachi 4 and in Luke, where Christ said John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, but there's coming yet another. So, will that Elijah be used in resurrection? Been done in the past. Elisha raised up too, the one who followed Elijah. But he's not mentioned in an end-time prophecy because that's Christ. Elijah did a major work there by resurrecting that woman's baby, by having the oil and the meal not go away for a year, destroying the prophets of Baal, killing them, and... Then he feared and ran from Jezebel. After all that, that's an example now not to follow again. Uh, when a Jezebel shows up, false church, we've got a little one right here on the property. Do we give in to Jezebel and run from her? Somebody suggested that not long ago. We just leave here and leave it to Jezebel. No. No, God says the rebels have to go. We don't have to flee from Jezebel. Sorry. Now, what about the New Testament? Christ raised up two while he was here. And then Peter raised one, and so did Paul. Now, Christ did it, but he used them as instruments, just like he was saying to Ezekiel here, you do the prophesying, you do the saying, you do the preaching, and then... Christ would supply the power. But in that sense, in the vision, Ezekiel was bringing these people up. And Ezekiel is an end-time prophecy, and these prophets are types of the two prophets at the end. Now, why did God use Peter and Paul to raise up an individual each? to show where God was working. Why else? What about Acts 2? The Pentecost came. People were healed left and right, just bang, 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 all over the place. 5,000 were converted one day and 3,000 another. God showed through those incredible miracles that He was working not through the Pharisees and the leaders of the so-called Jews, but through his New Testament ministry. That's why all those were done. And that's why Peter and Paul were used to show the church and any who might have heard of it that God was working through them, not through Simon Magus or anybody else. He's going to do the same thing again. That's in Zechariah 3, where he says there with the Joshua that's listed there that there would be signs and wonders, and that the eyes of all seven of the churches would turn to that stone, which obviously would be Christ, the foundation stone, because the visions, I mean the signs and wonders that are done there by the two witnesses will show the church where Christ is. 
So the things that have done in the past are going to be done in the near future, and probably in as great or greater degree than in the past. Because Christ told the disciples, as I said recently, you will do greater works than I have done. And to date, that has not yet occurred. So it has to, even yet. You're going to see signs and wonders, the likes of which have never been done. Didn't we read just the other week or two ago? I think it was right here in Ezekiel, where he would do such great wonders here at the end, it will make us forget the Red Sea, which is the greatest physical miracle God has done to date, up until now. So even greater things are just ahead of us. Do we believe that? It's in the Word of God. Do we believe God? Do we have faith in His Word? Do we have faith in Him? Do we live by this word or do we not? Do we read it and still not believe it? Will he find faith on the earth when he comes? Can he deliver us? Will he deliver us? Yes, he will. We have to do our part, but he said, I will do it. So the first fulfillment of this could even be within the promised land of some of those who have died there. Or it might be that it could be from somebody from Europe or Africa or somewhere else who's a member of the church who might be resurrected. I don't know. It doesn't say. But I think we can see that since God works in patterns and He's promised He's going to do even greater things than He's ever done before, that Ezekiel may be talking about a very small thing by comparison to the second resurrection, let's say in terms of numbers, it might occur in, in just enough amount to let 10% of the church know, yes, that's where I'm going. He stirs them to come and build a temple. Haggai. Then you could have another fulfillment of this when... Israel, spiritual Israel, 144,000, are resurrected. And some of them are all over the world, aren't they? Aren't there faithful members of God's church who have been buried all over the world? Paul wasn't buried in Jerusalem. He buried in Rome. What are they going to do? They're going to be gathered from all four corners of the earth to meet Christ in the air. And then a, nearly a year later, or a year later, they're going to come with him where? Into the land of promise, with the new Jerusalem, and live there forever. So we have a small gathering of physical people who come to build a temple. Maybe a few resurrections, we'll see. And some signs and wonders. Then we have a resurrection of 144,000 who are changed to spirit who will again come to the promised land. Then you have, at the end of the millennium, another bigger resurrection of the bones of Israel who will be brought up then as physical beings 
babies, people who haven't known God, <clears throat> and they'll be taught the truth. Then you're skipping forward to Revelation 20. But you've got Israelites coming up in other places at other times before you ever get to Revelation 20. Let's go back there a moment. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit. He laid hold on the Satan and bound him a thousand years and shut him up so that he could not deceive the nations until the thousand years would be fulfilled. And then he must be loosed for a very little season. And then it talks about the first resurrection. Those who didn't receive the mark of the beast here at the end time are resurrected, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So that's the first resurrection. But the rest of the dead lived not till the thousand years were finished. So one was the first resurrection done, and the rest didn't come up. And there's no second death to them. They're made priests of God, and they're made immortal spirit beings at that time. Now, when the thousand years are expired... Satan will be loosed out of his prison and go out to deceive the nations. And it mentions specifically the Asian nations here, Gog and Magog, to gather them up to come against the beloved city, Jerusalem. And fire comes down and devours them. So at the end of the thousand years, Satan's loose for a little bit, and he deceives the hordes of the east. And they come to destroy God's Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And they are destroyed. And at that time, the devil that deceived them was cast into a lake of fire. Then you have the great white throne. The dead, small and great, came before God. And these people were judged from the Bible and they have to be judged from the Word of God, that means they have to be taught it, which is your job and mine. And then you have the third resurrection when people go into the lake of fire. Now with that in mind, let's go back to Ezekiel and his story. So, whenever these bones are brought up, at whatever point in time part of the resurrection of Israel occurs, each time they'll be brought to the land of Israel from wherever they've been taken captive and killed, gone in wars, just moved to Asia or something and died there. The church will be brought back to the promised land from all over the world. The first resurrection, 144,000, will be gathered from around the world. Every time there's a resurrection of Israelites... Their bones and that which comes up, whether it be physical or spirit, comes to the back to the land of Israel. I'll bring you into the land of Israel. And so they're not all in that one valley. And you shall know that I am the Eternal, uh, verse 13, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you out of them, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. So it's not just a physical resurrection, there's a conversion here. Now we have a spirit in man which has to be restored in order for life to occur in a resurrected person. 
but he's also going to convert them when they come up. And again it says, I will place you in your own land from wherever you were, not just in this valley of Megiddo or whatever it is. We'll get to Megiddo and Armageddon here in a little bit. Verse 15, The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Moreover, son of man, and this is where I left off last week, take one stick and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. So, the tribes of Israel have been divided all these years, haven't they? From the time that the ten northern tribes went and then Judah, Levi, and Benjamin were together as the, uh, the tribe of, of Judah. So here he says there's going to be a joining together of the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Interestingly, it says, take the stick of Joseph, particularly of Ephraim, because Ephraim will represent all the other tribes. Jeremiah 31 says that Ephraim has been made into the firstborn. Now, where is all this going to occur? In the land of Ephraim, where the original promised land was. It was a small area here in southern Utah, northern Arizona. And then God said, I'll expand it. And he expanded it to the whole continent-wide But he's going to start over again in the original promised land. Israelites will be brought there from wherever they were. But Ephraim will represent them. It will happen in the land of Ephraim. It's going to happen here because we're Ephraim. Manasseh is Britain. Uh, And I'll put Ephraim together and his companions with a stick of Judah and make them one stick... And there shall be one in my hand. Now, each time God uh, gathers Israel, doesn't it include people from all the different tribes? There are people who were in the church here in the end time from all the different tribes. So they all come together and become one. So what did we have? When I would go to Europe, when I would go to Africa... When I would go to different uh, England and visit a church of God, which I've done all over the world, I found the same spirit and attitude wherever I went. Because they all became one. Whatever race they were, Gentile churches still had the same spirit that I saw in St. Louis or Seattle. The Spirit of God. So they became one. That's the first fulfillment of all this. When spiritually we have become one. Now, since God has done what He's done, we're not one anymore, are we? Now, you visit splendor churches of God around the world today, and you're going to run into different spirit and attitudes in every one of them. They won't be the same as they were 40 years ago. This won't be. They have a different spirit, a different approach, a different direction, a different goal, a different set of everything. They may still be friendly, but it'll be different. They won't have the same understandings. 
If any of them came and sat in here today, they'd think I was nuts. Different. We've got different understanding. But no, they're all that, that remnant is going to have the same understanding. They'll all come together to do a job, to build a temple and to build Jerusalem. And then that will happen again at the beginning of the millennium. God will call Israelites from all over the world that have escaped the Holocaust. He'll bring them back to Israel and begin to this area and begin to teach them the truth. He'll do the same thing in the second resurrection we just read about in Revelation 20, Great White Throne Judgment. They'll be brought back and taught the truth. So whichever fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 you're talking about, the same things occur. Unity in Christ. Verse 20, And the sticks whereon you write shall be in your hand before their eyes, and say to them, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen. There's a gathering. Where they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. Says it again here. So they've been resurrected. Not all in one valley in Israel. They'll be brought from everywhere and brought into their own land. So it's talking about different times, different resurrections, until it includes all the whole house of Israel once the order of resurrections is finished. So take Ezekiel 37 out of that little pigeonhole you have in your mind of it being just the second resurrection and realize that it is a much bigger picture than that. And it is in the context, first of all, of the latter days. Read the chapters before it and the chapters after it. It's all about the latter days. And when it starts in the latter days, it will happen, resurrection after resurrection, until the whole house of Israel has been covered. So it's a bigger prophecy than what we understood before. It includes what we understood before, but it includes much more until the vision encompasses everybody that ever was an Israelite. In whichever period of time you're talking about, he does the same thing to them. Verse 22, I'll make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Now that's true of the church. It has now just been divided into about 400 kingdoms. But when God brings those of the remnant together, they will become one, and they'll never be divided again, right? They'll go from wherever they are on this earth to the promised land. There they will be converted to the things we're beginning to understand and build a temple in Jerusalem. Then they'll go to Zion for protection from the beast. And from there they'll meet Christ in the air. So they'll never get divided again. At least in terms of a scattering or so on. There may be a few that are left by that go back in the house to get their precious whatever it was that don't make the cut. But as a people, it'll never be divided again. Same for the millennium. They'll all be brought back, taught the truth, and not be divided. Same in the second resurrection. 
Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things. See, they're not going to be deceived. Who's going to be deceived even in the second resurrection? Gog and Magog. Not Israel. They'll come against Israel and God will destroy them. So whenever, whichever phase of this you're talking about, they'll never be divided again. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. In each order of resurrections, it will occur that way until all Israel has been taken care of. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. All Israel. That means uh, prior to the millennium. It means during the millennium. It means during the great white throne judgment. And it means forever. Now, if Elijah and Moses appear, if Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these end time prophets and all the things they preached occur because the works that the two witnesses in the remnant church do at the end time are also written in Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all the way through. Are they not? They're written through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Are they not? So all of these prophecies were types of all the things that will happen here at the end time by God's final end time work. What about David? Same thing. He was one of those prophets. Just like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. He's a prophet. There's a lot of prophecy in the Psalms. A lot of it. Gathering to Zion. You know, it's all through the Psalms. So, David will also be represented by type in the end time church. And then at the first resurrection, he'll come up himself. And then he himself will be king of all Israel forevermore. Second resurrection on through. But he's going to show up just like Elijah showed up in John the Baptist, and Elijah will show up in one of the end time witnesses. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant. That's the promised land right here. Wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. So that's the ultimate fulfillment is forever. But it'll start in type here at the end. Again, the things that happen to this end time remnant church in Haggai and Zechariah are a miniature representation of the kingdom of God. We'll dwell in peace. We'll have Christ among us, as Zechariah 2 says. He will be a wall of fire around us. We'll have Edenic conditions. Weather will be controlled. Everything will be like it will be in the millennium. God is going to rub the nose of the beast and false prophet... How did I say that? He'll rub the nose of the beast and false prophet 
in it before it ever gets here. The kingdom of God is not going to be set up by the end time church. I'm not saying that. It won't. But a miniaturization of the physical conditions and the spiritual conversion is going to occur. And it will be smeared in the face of the beast and the false prophet and the rest of the world. And the miracles and the plagues that occur will be far greater than what the original Moses did because he again is merely a type of what will be done in greater degree at the end. Plagues all over the world. No rain all over the world as they decree. Much bigger than what Moses and Elijah did. Do we... No, we don't grasp that. I understand that. I'm trying to help us get a little bit of the picture so that we can begin to grasp the power of the work that God is about to do. Be far more powerful than Worldwide Church of God and Herbert Armstrong ever dreamed or imagined. They will be greater in glory. And old men will stand around to be able to compare. Some of you old men, maybe. Verse 26, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Doesn't it say, In this place will I bring peace, Aaron Haggai too? And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and will set up my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. So Christ says, I'm going to, with the first fulfillment of this scripture, I'm going to come and dwell with them in Zion. And he will from then on, because he will be with them in Zion all through the tribulation. Then he'll go back and resurrect the others first, and then them that are alive and remain. So he'll have, he'll have not rejected them or left them, will he? He'll still be around. I'll be in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. He says he'll come and dwell with them in the tribulation. Then he's going to bring the kingdom down in the new Jerusalem with the Father and the Son, beginning of the millennium, and it'll rule the entire earth. So it's forevermore. And then when the second resurrection occurs, the kingdom of God will already be here. The new heavenly Jerusalem is the saints, and they'll be here. So it never ends once it starts with the gathering of the remnant church here at the end never is broken again. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And the heathen shall know that I the Eternal do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Well, that begins when he comes to dwell with us in Zion here very shortly now and through the tribulation. And he's going to do the things that will make the heathen know that he's God. Isaiah 45 says that he will bring out the treasures and the temple vessels and the history and show the heathen from the east to the west, from the rising of the sun to the setting of it, that he is God. He's going to send the witnesses out as a witness that he is God. And they're going to get it in the neck. And boy, will they be happy when those two are killed. They'll think they won. 
All right. Let's go into chapter 38 then. Now, with that explanation in mind, let's see what comes next. Okay? The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Go back to Genesis 10, and you will see that these names are listed there as the children of Japheth, the Asian people. That's all you need to know now, because the Bible talks about the hordes of the east, and these are the peoples, the hordes of the east. So we're talking about Japhethites here, the nations of Asia. And say, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the chief prince, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, children of Japheth again. And I will turn you back and put, put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you forth. Now, when you fish, you put hooks in the jaws of a fish, and you turn them around and bring them back <laughs> to you with the hook in line. So he's using that analogies. So they are going to come forward to do something, and God says, I'm going to put a hook in you and drag you right back away from what it is that you intend to do. The fish was going to swim up the river. You put a hook in its mouth, and you drag it back to you. That's what he's saying. And all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. And then he names others that are, who are with them in this, maybe some of the Middle Eastern nations, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, and so on. Uh, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of the northern quarters, and all his hands and many people with you. Tugarma is one of the sons of Japheth, or a grandson of Japheth, as I recall, whichever it is. Anyway, a coalition of all these peoples. So God says, Be you prepared, and prepare for yourself, you and all your company that are assembled to you, and be you a guard to them. Why? Because I'm coming after you, God says. You, you better look to your arms. You better look to your soldiers. You better pay attention and protect them, because I'm coming after them. After many days you shall be visited. In the latter years you shall come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. So he's talking about a time here when the land which has been laid waste now for many generations... Jerusalem has not had any inhabitants, right? Jeremiah 9 and Isaiah places tell us that. Been uninhabited. Now, God is going to begin to bring His remnant people in and inhabit it. Now, we already understand and know, do we not, that once we get the city of Jerusalem built, the beast is going to come and defile it, and then the times of the Gentiles will last 42 months, three and a half years, the time of the tribulation when the church, the remnant, will be in Zion in protection. But this is in the latter years. It doesn't say days, but latter years. It doesn't say the beginning years, does it? It says the latter years. 
the latter days we saw in the previous chapter. So, I would call the years at the beginning of the millennium the beginning years. The latter years, the latter days, are these days that we're in right now, the latter days of Satan's and man's rule. The first days of Christ's rule begin with the millennium. Or actually, they begin with the congregation in Zion, where he comes and dwells with them. So, these are going to be coming against a people who have been already been brought forth in what was the wasteland. This is talking about us, if we're part of the faithful remnant that they come up against. Now, we already know that the Assyrian is the rod of God's anger from many scriptures, and that there's going to be a big coalition of nations that come with the Assyrian, which I think at this point is Russia, to destroy this nation. And there are already Russian soldiers in the Smoky Mountains, many of them in Colorado Springs, Colorado, scattered in different places of the earth. Mostly, they've come in and inhabited the eastern areas and to the Midwest, as far as the Rockies. But you know what's coming in on the other coast? You know who owns the port of San Diego now, or the port of Long Beach, I guess it is? The Chinese. You know who the government was trying to give all that Bundy land to? The Chinese. Because there are rare earth minerals there, and great opportunity for solar, and also freeways nearby that can put them all across the country. So we already have the Assyrian and those northern nations in Eastern Europe who will be combined together to come and destroy the great whore America. And we already have people from the East who are coming in to this country. Ten years ago, you go to an American National Park and there were Japanese everywhere. Today you go... It is still Asians everywhere, but they're Chinese and Indians. I visited quite a few national parks in the last two or three years. And fully 60 or 65% of the people you see watching Old Faithful in Yellowstone are Chinese. Another 10 or 15% are from India. And the rest are a smattering of Europeans and Americans, minorities. That's the way it is. He is talking here about an invasion that comes and destroys this nation, and then perhaps a little later, the latter years, not just the latter days, but latter years, they will come and try to destroy what God has established up here in Jerusalem. His temple, His walled city of Jerusalem in the latter years. You'll come back into the land that has been brought back from the sword. See, America will have been destroyed earlier by the Assyrian. Then, there's another wave that comes in to the promised land that's already been brought out of the nations. And they're all dwelling safely there. 
You shall ascend and come like a storm, and you shall be like a cloud to cover the land, you and all your bands, and many people with you. Thus says the eternal God, It shall come to pass that at the same time shall things come to your mind, and you shall think an evil thought. (laughs) They're evil people, and they'll have evil thoughts. And you shall say, I will get up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and a prey, and uh, to turn your hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. Won't be desolate anymore. Be inhabited by God's people, the, the remnant church. And upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, the remnant church which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Zechariah 2. There will be villages without walls and much men and cattle there. Saying the same thing right here. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lands thereof shall say to you, Are you come to take a spoil? Have you gathered your company to take a prey? To carry away what? Silver and gold to take away cattle and goods to take a great spoil. Realize that when God fulfills Isaiah 44 and 45 and opens the minds of Solomon and brings forth all the gold and silver temple treasures and the greatest mine that has ever been on the face of the earth and uses that gold to cover the temple with solid gold, the floors, the walls, the ceiling, the outside, with solid gold, and puts all those golden vessels in it. Who has the greatest appetite for gold in the world right now? China and India are buying it up as fast as they can. Europe and America are selling it as fast as they can to stay afloat. The Asians have a great lust for gold and silver. And when they see that temple shining in the original land of Israel, and they see that city built up, and they realize the greatest treasure hold of gold on earth is not in their vaults in China But right here in the original promised land, they're going to want it. And they're going to come after it. To carry away silver and gold from this land that has been desolate for many, many centuries. The very area of Jerusalem where we know that it was north of Zion right now, has no one dwelling there. Now, there's Mormons in these towns and the valleys around here. And the Bible even talks about the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites living here and being cast out, right? But there's nobody living on the original site of Jerusalem. Not a house. Nothing. Right now, today. But it is going to have a magnificent temple put there and a magnificent city built, and then the beast and false prophet will come in from one direction and set up their headquarters there. But maybe even before they do that, 
these hordes of the east are going to say, they got more gold than we do, we're going to go get it. Now let's go on down. We'll take the silver and the gold. People say, is that what you're going after? A great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the eternal God, in that day when my people of Israel dwell safely, shall you not know it? You're going to see it. The whole world's going to know that that temple and that gold has been built in that city. They're all going to know it. And you shall come from your place out of the north parts, you and many people with you, all of them riding horses, a great company, a mighty army. Horses just represent weapons of war. And you shall come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the great white throne judgment. Wait a minute. It shall be in the latter days. And I will bring you against my land, that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in you, O God, before their eyes. America will already have been destroyed. Because the people who gather to do God's end time work come when? As the northern Assyrian army and its coalition come against America, the great whore, says there in Jeremiah 50, that people will flee to Zion and ask, how do I get to Zion? So, the great whore falls, then God's people, who have gathered just ahead of that fall, during and just ahead of it, will build a temple and begin to build Jerusalem. And the Asians are going to say, America's ours. And that gold is ours. And they're going to come after it in the latter days. And I will bring you against my land that the heathen may know me. So he's going to say here, I'm going to show those gogs and magogs that I'm God. Thus says the eternal God. Are ye of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring you against them? Isn't this what the prophets have been talking about? And it shall come to pass at the same time, latter days, when God shall come, Gog shall come against the land of Israel, says the Eternal, that my fury shall come up in my face. This is going to anger God. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground." This is stuff that's done in the latter days. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, the mountains of Israel, says the eternal God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. Now, the Assyrians in history with Gideon killed each other. Gog and Magog are going to do the same thing. They're going to kill each other. 
And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him, upon his bands, and upon the many people that are with him, an overflowing rain, and great hailstones, fire, and brimstone, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. He's going to destroy the hordes of the East. Now, this is before the great white throne judgment. This is the latter days when they're coming after the treasures of God. Let's go on here a little bit. Therefore, thou son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the eternal God, I'm coming against you, and I will turn you back and leave but the sixth part of you. Five, six of them will die. Five out of six men. And will cause you to come up from the north parts and will bring you upon the mountains of Israel. So God is going to toll them in against the mountains of Israel. And I will smite your bow and cause your arrows to fall out of your hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your bands and the people that is with you. I'll give you to the ravenous birds of every sort. Well, we know where Israel is, don't we? It's not in the Middle East. It's right here. This is the land of Ephraim. And we're in the edge of the promised land, right here. Below Zion and the hill of Jerusalem. It's going to come on the mountains of Israel. What does Armageddon mean? The words, two, two Hebrew words. One is the hills and mountains, what it stands for. The other is rendezvous, or meeting, or gathering. They're going to gather in the hills and mountains of Israel. That's here. And the valley of Megiddo is the valley in the hills and mountains of Israel where they gather to die. They're coming from Asia to the west coast. They're going to come right across until they reach the hurricane fault line. The mountains just east of Jerusalem. Mountains that go all the way up through Utah to the Idaho border. They're going to come that far because that's where the temple and Jerusalem are. And that valley, just in front of the mountains, the Wasatch Range, is where they'll die. Right up here. You shall fall upon the open fields, for I have spoken it, says the eternal God, and I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the coasts, and they shall know that I am the eternal. And I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. We'll be there, the remnant church. And I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the eternal, the holy one in Israel. He's going to unleash Sodom and Gomorrah on them right up here, in the valley, the gathering place or rendezvous place. Megiddo, Megiddon, Armageddon, all have the same root word in the Hebrew. Behold, it is come, and it is done, says the eternal God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. Now, what day is he talking about there? Who spoke it? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of them, Ezekiel included. This is the day I've talked about. 
And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. This is going to happen fairly soon now, brethren. And it may all be accomplished by the time Christ returns in the first resurrection. So that they shall take no wood out of the field. There's plenty of weapons to burn. Diesel out of the tanks. Who knows? And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give to Gog a place thereof, graves in Israel, the valley of the uh, passengers on the east of the sea. So travelers. Where's the sea? original sea was right up here through the middle of the Great Basin in Nevada. used to be a sea all the way through Canada. They even have signs that tell you that up in Bryce Canyon. shows pictures and their drawings of when the sea came up through here. They found Phoenician ships over in California. So east of the sea. Well, these mountains up through here are east of the sea, and so is the valley where Jerusalem is. And it will stop the noses of the travelers. That many dead bodies, five-sixths of the hordes of the east, that's going to smell. And there shall they bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of Hamon Gog. Uh, in seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them. So seven months to bury them. But for seven years, they'll still find a bone sticking up here and there. So, we'll be here seven months, for sure, after this occurs. And then the abomination is set up after these people are destroyed. So, all those people who have gathered here from all over the world to do the end-time work will be the ones for seven months burying these Asians. You never saw that before. But this is the latter days. It's not the second resurrection. Yea, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown the day that I shall be glorified, says the Eternal. And then they'll have people that are, that's their whole job. They'll be hired to bury people for seven months, verse 14. And the travelers that pass through the land will see a bone and they'll hang a sign up and say, there's a bone here, come bury it. And they'll cleanse the land. Verse 17, And you, son of man, thus says eternal, speak to every feathered fowl, every coyote, every fox, every fowl, to come and eat. Because there's going to be a lot of flesh and blood out there. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, lambs, goats, bullocks, and all the fatlings of Bashan. And you'll eat till you're full, and so on. You'll be filled at my table with horses and chariots, verse 20. And all the men of war, says eternal God. 21, and I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the eternal, their God, from that day and forward. Now, these people don't defeat anybody. Did you notice that? The Assyrian is the rod of God's anger. He's the one that destroys Israel. He and the coalition of nations that come with him. These people came to destroy and to take the spoil of the gold and silver in the temple of God that we're going to build. But God will destroy them. They don't take anybody captive, do they? 
I've heard people say that this is, oh, the Asians are coming, the Asians are coming, they're going to destroy America. No, they're not. And little fat man ain't either. Kim Jung Yon Youngen, I call him. Not going to do it. It's the Assyrian, the Russians, and their coalition that will destroy Israel, Western Europe, and us. But us first, because they hate us the most. These people don't destroy Israel. Didn't we just read that? They don't do that. God destroys them. And then the people that they were coming to destroy and rob are going to bury them. That's us. Verse 23, And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I me from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they fell by the sword. Now, didn't God tell us in Isaiah and other places, He's hidden His face from us now, and that He's going to forgive our sins in one day and turn His face back to us in Zechariah 3 and in Isaiah 44 and other places? Yes, that's the church, the remnant of the church that He's going to turn His face back to. And these people are going to try to destroy us. Didn't He say He would be a wall of fire and a defense around us? He meant it! All the hordes of the east cannot hurt us. That's what Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 are about. Verse 25, Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. So what's going to happen? These people are going to come and try to destroy His work, which He set up. They will fail and be killed. And then He will have mercy on the whole house of Israel. The millennium will start shortly thereafter. And He'll gather physical Israel from all over the world and set up the millennium in peace. And those who are the rest of the bones of Israel will wait till the second resurrection just as it says in Revelation 20, the rest of the dead lived not till the thousand years was over. But he's going to start showing mercy on the whole house of Israel, beginning of the millennium. And it will carry through the great white throne judgment until all have been shown mercy. After that, they have borne their shame, or after that they've borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in the land, and none made them afraid, when I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of the, their enemies' lands and have sanctified in them in the sight of many nations. Then shall they know that I am the eternal their God. So he's talking about Gog and Magog coming against a smaller group and being destroyed and then he's going to begin to gather physical Israel that has survived the Holocaust. Which caused them to be led into the captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them to their own land and have left none of them anymore there. Now he's not resurrecting them at this point because these are the ones that have survived the Holocaust at the end of the age. The seven last plagues. But the rest live not until the thousand years is over. Then they come up. 
neither will I hide my face anymore from them. For I have poured out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, says the eternal God. He's going to turn first to spiritual Israel, his church, and bless it. And the nation of America will have been destroyed by the Assyrian. And once we get the temple built and the Asians see it, they're going to want the gold and come after it and be destroyed. And then God is going to begin to gather his people to start the millennium. Then, let's finish up. I know I'm going over, but I usually stop short, so forget it. I want to wrap this up in Revelation 20. Keep your mind going, even though you're behind is tired. Revelation 20. Now, we already read most of this a little earlier. I'm going to get there eventually here. About how Satan is bound for the thousand years and uh, the first resurrection, 140,000 comes, 144,000 comes, the throne of God comes down. And the rest of the dead live not again till the thousand years were finished. That's the first resurrection. Their spirit, second death, doesn't mean anything. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations... Now, this isn't talking about the latter days. Can't be. The nations are already deceived today, aren't they? Aren't China and India and Vietnam and North Korea and all of those people deceived by Satan? They already are. So... Those people are the ones who were the ones that are here now today that are currently deceived are the ones who will come against Jerusalem and be destroyed. Now, when a thousand years later, Satan is loose for a little while and he goes out and deceives the same nations again. They're deceived today, so this can't be applying to now. And it's talking about after at the second resurrection when he's loosed and he goes out and deceives them. That means that all through the thousand years, people have been taught the truth. They know who God is. They know where Jerusalem is. If they didn't keep the feast, they didn't get any rain until they repented. So they will not, at this point, at the end of the millennium, be deceived. So it can't be talking about the same ones that were back there in Ezekiel 38 and 9. He goes out to deceive people who are not deceived. Those people back there in Revelation 8, 38 and 39 didn't know who God was. Remember that? It says, they shall know that I am the eternal when I do this. Now here... These people have already known the eternal for a thousand years. And Satan is loosed and deceives them. Talking about a totally different time. That was in the latter days and latter years. This is after the millennium. When no one is deceived anymore. And the only candidates to be deceived are these. Those learned who the Eternal was back there when Sodom and Gomorrah happened to them. 
when they tried to steal the temple treasures. So Satan then gathers them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. The beloved city is the new Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And at that point, the devil was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. He wasn't back in the latter days, the latter years. He wasn't bound until the beginning of the millennium. Here he's loosed a little bit. And this time, after he's deceived these people who did know who God was, he will be cast into the lake of fire. And the beast and the false prophet will go in there with him. And then comes the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment. I saw the dead small and great stand before God. The Bible was opened. And the book of life was opened. And those people then begin to be judged out of the Bible and put into the book of life if they repent and will later have their salvation. I think, finally, we can understand, because I didn't before, what it's talking about there at the end of the book of Ezekiel. Now, next week, God willing, we'll start with chapter 40, and we're going to go through eight whole chapters, believe it or not, and finish up the book of Ezekiel. But we're also going to find that that is a physical temple built in the latter years, the latter days. It has to be done. And who's going to do it? Oh, the Jews. That's who it is. The Jews going to do it. No, I just baited a hook. I'm going to pull you in next week, and you're going to see some things there that you haven't learned yet.